seven weeks on the Gospel of John. And uh, we're in chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 13. We're going to be right in the middle of chapter 13 in just a a few moments. But I want to start off by uh, asking you to think about skin, about your skin. Our skin is uh, soft. It's kind of like a woven, tightly woven fabric. It appears porous from the outside with millions of tiny little openings. You know, they ooze sweat out. They breathe in. But you, you might be surprised to learn how effective a barrier our, our skin is. You know, for decades now, medicine makers have tried to develop a variety of drugs that can be administered through the skin. Doctors call these transdermal drugs, you know, those patches that they'll put on for pain relief or hormones or whatever it might be, and, and pharmaceutical companies are racing to perfect a a way to make drugs that can be accepted this way, painlessly. It's much better than an injection, isn't it? But for all the work, there have only been a, a, a handful of medicines and compounds that actually can go through our skin. But they found out if our skin is prepared, if it's temporarily altered, then the medicines can permeate it. So the scientists have developed ointments that make the skin uh, more able to transmit drugs. They've used the like low electrical currents to propel the drugs through the skin. And they've even invented these little patches about the size of a Band-Aid with tiny micro needles that just pierce the top layer of the skin, just enough to get the, the medicine in, but not deep enough to be felt by our nerves, pretty ingenious. All of this to overcome the barrier of our skin. Well, I want you to just uh, think about that from a spiritual standpoint because spiritually we're, we're kind of the same. Our hearts have barriers. We can be immersed in God's grace but at times none of it permeates into our hearts. We're going to be talking today about Judas. Judas spent over three years up close with Jesus himself. But in the end, he handed Jesus over to be murdered for 30 pieces of silver. Sometimes the problem isn't the environment. Sometimes the problem is that we are impenetrable to God's work, to his good news to his grace and his mercy. Just as the skin needs to be treated to transmit medication into the body, so our souls require the special work of God's grace before we can receive the life and the healing that he wants to bring. I mentioned Judas, and I want to just think about him for a few minutes. He's one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. Judas decided to follow Jesus. Judas heard Jesus teach every day. He went out two by two with the other disciples, healing the sick, overcoming and exercising demons. Judas did a lot of disciple kinds of things. And yet today, he's remembered solely for how his relationship with Jesus ended, isn't he? Nobody names their child Judas today, do they? Not a popular name. You see, how a life 
how a ministry, how a relationship, how it ends is absolutely crucial to everything that comes before it. We're calling today's message the anatomy of betrayal. That word anatomy, the definition is that it's a study of the structure or the internal workings of something. Often we think about the body, the anatomy of the body. And so we want to consider the structure and workings of betrayal in the life of Judas. You know, betrayal is seldom sudden, an accident. Most often betrayal is slow. It's imperceptible. It's kind of like a, a disease hidden and growing over the years in the body. You see, the kingdom of Judas was not the same as the kingdom of Jesus. And it's out of that collision of those two differing kingdoms that betrayal was born. There is, I think, a lot that we can learn from Judas as we consider our own kingdom mindset the structure and the inner workings of our life and how our own attitudes and thought patterns and actions fit within God's kingdom. In John chapter 13, the, uh, the apostle John writes about Judas and the dynamics of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Last week, as we entered into this chapter, we discovered that it introduces the end of Jesus's three-year public ministry with his 12 disciples. These are the guys that he's developed this deep and abiding relationship with. And so as he begins to wrap up his public ministry, Jesus declares that he wants to be alone with his guys. And so he says to them, I, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And in the verse, first verse of John 13, John makes this marvelous statement. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I want you to just note that last statement there. He loved them to the end. Jesus was about to move into great agony, horrible treatment, physical torture, the end. He knew it was coming. But John says through all of his emotional and physical impending pain, he never stopped loving. He loved to the end. And the text says actually literally that he loved to the ultimate, ultimate all the way to the cross. I think that's what that means. Having made that marvelous statement about the love of Jesus, then the text all of a sudden takes kind of a nasty turn. Look at verse two. It interrupts the flow of the wonderful thoughts of Jesus with, with these words. And during the supper, the devil, having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Christ. Isn't that a jarring kind of turn of events there. The great love of Jesus to the end. And by the way, Judas is there. Judas is there. And then in the next verse, John goes back to talking about Jesus. Now we know from, uh, from Luke's account of this night that as those men gathered in the upper room, as the dinner was finishing up, that the 12 guys were 
were discussing an important theological issue. Do you know what it was? They, they were sitting around, kind of like you might do after dinner. There's kind of a conversation going on. And what were they talking about? Which one of us is going to be the greatest when Christ comes into his kingdom? They were kind of arguing about it. In other words, who's going to have the big spot? The big spot. Who's going to be the, the big shot in Jesus' kingdom? And then, as we looked at it last week, you remember in this beautiful picture that, that, that's there in, in John 13, Jesus, I just imagine him, he's listening to the guys talking. He's right there. And they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus just gets up. He just gets up and he strips off his clothes, picks up that towel and that basin, and he begins to wash their feet. The Son of God becoming a servant. And humbly as a servant, he washes all of their feet as if to say, guys, the kingdom is not about who's the big shot. The kingdom is about which one of us will be willing to serve. Well, that's where we went last week. But now we get to verse 21. And John takes us back to Judas again. And so I want to invite you to read this section with me. Verses 21 through 26, the words on the screen. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Amen. God's word. So, Jesus has this startling statement. Right in the midst of this very emotional time, the foot washing, all that, one of you is going to betray me. And what does it say? The disciples began looking at one another. Literally, the word means they began staring at each other. Here they are, faithfully following the Lord, and suddenly Jesus says, one of you guys is going to turn me in. One of you guys is going to do me dirty. One of you guys is evil. And they start staring each other. I don't know what they're staring at. What are they looking for? Maybe looking for body language, for clues. I can kind of maybe picture, you know, Nathaniel nudges Andrew who's sitting next to him maybe and says, hey, hey, did you see Thomas over there? He kind of blinked. I wonder if it's him. They're all looking at each other. Of course, some of them are asking even, is it me, Lord? Is it me? Wow. Can you just picture the tension in the room at that moment? And then, and then Simon Peter, sitting, sitting somewhere at that table, he, he motions to his buddy John. You know, they're two of the, the inner circle with Jesus, right? He says, John, John, ask him who he's talking about. John's next to Jesus. And so he leans over and says, Lord, Lord, who is it? Give me the inside skinny. Who is it? Jesus says, I'll show you. I'll show you. Watch this. 
And then Jesus hands Judas that piece of bread. Now, we have to assume that, that that's a rather quiet conversation between John and Jesus because uh, the Lord hasn't necessarily made a public announcement to all the rest about who it is. They, they don't know. Now, you're, you're likely aware of the, the most well-known depiction of this event, event painted by the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci. We call it the Last Supper. And that, this is a very famous painting. You've seen it. Some of you might have it hanging in your house. I don't know, a copy of it. It's a wonderful painting, but it's, it's, not, it's not very accurate. It's just certainly not historically accurate. It's likely that seated to the immediate right of Jesus was John. He calls himself the, the beloved disciple. Of course, they, they would have naturally sat at kind of a U-shaped table. They were sitting on the floor on cushions, a very low table, so they are kind of leaning against one another. It's not the most comfortable position, I suppose, to eat. But John says, who is it, Jesus? Most scholars believe that Judas was the one seated to the left of Jesus, which, by the way, in this setting, was the highest place of honor. It was the seat of honor right next to the host on his left. So think about that. Jesus intentionally invited Judas to sit at the place of highest honor for the evening. And here they are, gathered in this most intimate of meals together, away from the crowd, just the guys. One of the reasons the scholars believe Judas is seated immediately to Jesus' left is because that would probably be the only way that Jesus could kind of pull off what he does next, right? He takes that morsel of bread and he dips it into a very special mixture of, of raisins and dates and wine, a sour wine. And then he takes a chunk of that bread and he, and he puts that, that dip there and he hands it to Judas. And, and what you need to know is this. When a host would do that, it's making a statement of honor, of love. In that culture, to receive a morsel dipped in that sauce was to be highly honored at the meal. And so not only has Jesus seated Judas at the seat of honor, but he has extended to Judas great honor to the very one who will betray him. Now let's read what happens next, picking up in verse 26. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. It was night. The word of God. We know that as we've worked our way through this gospel of John, that John likes to use the metaphor of light and darkness. We've seen it happen before. The light is always about Jesus Christ, who indeed is the Son, the S-O-N, 
but he is the son who brings the S-U-N, the light of this world. He is the light. And the kingdom of Satan, according to John, is always in terms of darkness, of night. So isn't it interesting that John adds that last statement there. Judas went out and it was night. A reference to Judas entering into the dark kingdom of the adversary. Now, it's likely that for most of us, this is a familiar story. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. So I, I think it's, it's good sometimes to try and take a, a very familiar account and, and make it maybe not so familiar. So one way of doing this is maybe to ask some questions. So let's just think of some questions that we, we might ask about this account. Does it come to your mind like it did to mine? How could this happen? How could it be? How could it be that you might possibly walk with God himself for three years on the face of this planet that you could see the miracles, that you could be the object of his, his affection and his love, that you could have felt his touch, that you could have listened to the depths of his great wisdom? How could it be that you would be a witness to his compassion to even the worst of sinners. How could it be that you could have been so impressed with a person like Jesus and then in a moment betray him, hand him over to the authorities who you knew were plotting to kill him? How could it be? Do you count that as strange? I do. I think it's an amazingly bizarre response to three years of time spent with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What would drive Judas to do this? Now before we attempt to answer that question, we need to examine this anatomy of betrayal, the structure and the workings of betrayal in the life of Judas. And we wanna do that because we want to make some application from this first century historical event in the life of Jesus and we want to apply it to our life as followers of Jesus in the 21st century. So for the remainder of our time, I want to examine three realities of betrayal. And reality number one is this. Betrayal is an inside-out matter. You know, Judas was probably the last guy that you would have expected to betray Christ. He was the treasurer. He had been trusted with all the funds of the kingdom. So obviously he is a man who's held in, in high esteem, in high trust. Also, the rest of the disciples have apparently so much respect for him that having watched him closely for three years, when Jesus handed him the bread at Passover and then he gets up to leave, nobody says, oh, figures. I knew it would be Judas. That's not recorded in scripture. Oh, I knew it would be that guy. I saw it coming a mile away. They didn't say that. They're all like, who could it be? Who could it be? Oh, there goes Judas. I guess he's going to run an errand for the Lord. I guess he's going to go grab some more food for us. Maybe Jesus is sending him out to, to take care of some poor people on this special holiday. They don't have a clue. Because they didn't suspect him. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what your preferences or opinions or ideas are about a variety of topics. 
I just don't know them unless you tell them to me. I have no clue about your prejudices or your priorities or who you look up to or what you think about me because that's all stuff that's inside of you. You see, betrayal is an inside-out thing. It's what we're cultivating on the inside. I will never forget my first ministry as a young youth minister. Like 23 years old. And every week, I met with five or six other youth ministers in town, and we would meet to encourage one another and plan some activities together, sometimes to study together. Most of us were, were very young, in our very early 20s, right out of Bible college, just getting started in, in church work. But one of the guys was kind of the leader and the organizer of our group. He, he, we usually met at, at, at the church he worked at, and he was about 10 years older than the rest of us. He'd been in youth ministry for a while, and so he was the, the go-to guy for advice. He was the voice of, of experience. He'd spoken at several conferences. He regularly headed up camp programs. He had the biggest youth group of any of us. He knew a lot of quote-unquote important people, and, and we all looked up to him. And so I will never forget my shock when I heard the news that he had bailed on his church. He simply didn't show up one Sunday morning. And it was because he had run off to Texas with a teenage girl that he'd been counseling. He betrayed his young children. He betrayed his wife. He betrayed his flock. He betrayed the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. All for the comfort of someone who satisfied his ego and brought him the pleasures that he desired. And no one saw it coming. Certainly no one expected it of this guy. You see, betrayal is an inside-out matter. And the things that we hold inside, our thoughts, our goals, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our disappointments, our worries, all of these, if they are not handled properly, can become the first step toward betrayal. Because betrayal is an inside-out matter. Not only is it an inside-out thing, but reality number two, betrayal is done in the face of Christ's love. In the face, we have that kind of saying, right? Sometimes it happens on the basketball court or something. In your face, right? When we betray Jesus, that's what we're doing. In your face, Jesus. Think about this. First of all, Jesus has loved Judas for three years. Judas has never experienced that kind of love before. And now Jesus has intentionally given him a seat of honor and intentionally in love shared a gift with him, this morsel of honor. And so do you find yourself saying, how, Judas, how? I mean, if Jesus, if Jesus had been so bad to you, I could see maybe that you'd want to betray him. But how could you betray him in the face of such phenomenal love? And friends, we need to think about that. Because are you ever tempted to betray Jesus? Are you ever tempted to betray his way, 
to, to leave behind his plan and his purpose for you? To betray his bride, the church? You see, when we go our own way, that's what we're doing. We're betraying Jesus. Look to his face. He has loved you like no one else has ever loved you before or will ever love you again. Look to the nail scars in his hands. It was all for you, for me. Look at the grace every day. Look at the provision every day. Look at the mercy he continues to extend to us. When you and I betray Christ by choosing our way over his way, we do it in the face of his amazing love for us. That's what makes it so wrong and so amazingly bizarre. And yet, it happens all the time, doesn't it? It has become the way of the culture in which we live, which values personal choices and preferences as the ultimate good goal. But you see, friends, when you and I consistently value my way above his way, we step into the area, the arena of betrayal. And friends, if you and I betray Jesus, we betray him in the face of his faultless love for us. Betrayal is an inside-out matter. Betrayal is done in the face of of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ's love. And then number three, betrayal is supported by a stubborn will. A stubborn will. If we follow the whole account of Judas through all four Gospels, we see that by the time they get to the upper room for that final meal, Judas had already cut a deal. He had already made up his mind. He's been to the authorities. He's negotiated the price. But just think about being Judas at that supper in that last room. You come in. And Jesus says, sit here, Judas, in the seat of honor. And you're honored with the best seat. And then Christ washes your feet. And he honors you with that privileged taste of food. In the face of such care and honor, we might think that G Judas would just be overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus. He could have said, I, I can't go through with this. How could I be so stupid? What was I thinking? How did I, ah. Oh. But do you notice how stubborn he is? Even when Jesus predicts his actions, in essence, he says to Judas, I know what you're going to do, buddy. He gets up and he leaves to go do the deed. It's startling to think that Satan can actually come into the heart of a, a man who is in such close proximity with Jesus as Judas was. And more, he's cunningly trying to do the same thing today in our life. And yet, he can only get in through the doors that we open from the inside if we're walking with Jesus. I found this great quote, every man controls the door of his own life. Every man controls the door of his own life. You see, Satan can't get in without our help. We've got to leave the door ajar. We've got to undo the deadbolt. 
and the slide and the door lock. Leave it open so they can slither in there. I can't believe how stubborn Judas's will is about this whole betrayal. I can't believe it until I look into my own heart. Right? We come to church on a Sunday and then we think, oh, I don't care what the preacher said. I don't agree with that. I don't care what God says. I don't care what my wife says. I don't care what my kids think. I don't care what it means for my job. I don't care. I'm going to do this because I want to. You see, sin can be a real and a stubborn thing. Now, we might be inclined to think back to verse 2 where it says Satan had put this into Judas's heart or in verse 27 when we read that Satan had now entered Judas. And so we might read those statements and conclude, well, Judas is a victim here. He's like a, a pawn in a cosmic drama that's being played out and he got stuck with the, the rotten roll. Is that what's happening here? No. Because remember, all through Scripture, over and over and over again, we see that sin and rebellion are always a matter of personal choice. James puts it so well in James chapter 1 in verses 14 and 15 when he tells us that, the, the, that we sin when we're led away by our own desires, right? And we're, when we're led away by those desires, then sin happens. And when sin starts to happen, then death starts to happen. So God is so very clear all through Scripture about the fact that all of our sin is a matter of choice with us. What happened with Judas is that he made choices that prepared the ground where Satan could plant the seed to enter his heart and seduce him. He was seduced based on the cultivation of his life by personal choices that he made. So what were these choices that, that led Judas to be the sort of person who could betray the Lord Jesus? Well, we, we don't get it right in this text, but I'll briefly go back to chapter 12, where we were a few weeks ago, one, just a, our previous chapter. And uh, in this account, which we didn't actually look at in the message time, but Judas is there in the house of Lazarus. You remember that Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus Christ. And Mary, Lazarus' sister, is trying to, to figure out how to say thank you to Jesus. It's a, a celebration dinner. And words don't, they don't work in a situation like that. How do you say the right words to say thank you for raising my brother from the dead? And so she's trying to figure out what to do to express her great gratitude for what Jesus has done. And so she goes into her bedroom and she gets what would have been the most prized possession for a woman of that day, a container of pure nard oil, a perfume of the richest kind. The oil would have been worth one year's wages and she brings it out right at the, in the dinner party and she pours it on Jesus' feet all over him. And as she is anointing Christ, Judas is standing back with the other disciples and he says something along the lines of, what a waste. What a waste. We could have taken this and sold it. We could have sold it and given the money away to the poor. Ah, oh, he's so spiritual, so enlightened. 
right? And friends, beware when people sound too spiritual. Beware when you sound too spiritual. Because then John adds a note to the story. Remember, he, he wrote his gospel after the fact, after all these things had transpired. And so he's smarter, you know, when he writes than he was when he was in that, that upper room. And so he wrote a note back in chapter 12 after he tells about what happens with Mary. And, and he says, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. By the way, the literal translation there gives us the idea that Judas stole from the treasury on a regular basis. It wasn't a one-time thing. He regularly took money out. He took what he wanted. Does that give you a little glimpse into the the cultivation of the, the ground that's going on in Judas's life, the opening of the door for Satan to enter in, it's clear that Judas had made a choice early on. He decided that he would not be in this thing for Jesus and Jesus alone, but he was going to be in it for himself, for cash. Cash is king, right, as they say. You see, following Christ meant personal gain for him. Wealth, power, status. And if Christ were to overthrow the Roman government and establish a, a powerful kingdom here on earth as many expected that he would, including many of the disciples, guess who would be treasurer? Head of the bank. He's on the inside track to great wealth. Judas. Because he had made a choice that cash would rule his life. And then he finds out as Jesus increasingly and continually and more explicitly teaches them that the kingdom is not coming now. That Christ was going to the cross to certain death. And because his life was driven by a desire for more more wealth, more cash. It's at that point that Judas likely figured, well, the end game is that I can at least get out of here with 30 pieces of silver. And so he makes the deal. Now, we also need to know the rest of the story, don't we? In Matthew's account of all this, Matthew 25, we're told that the, about the last chapter of Judas's life, and it says that Judas, standing far off, sees Jesus. His hands are bound. He's surrounded by the Roman guards. He's being led away to trial. And when Judas sees him, his heart was struck with deep, penetrating sorrow. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that someday, someday all of us will see Jesus face to face. When Judas saw Jesus, he, I suppose, maybe thought, how often he had seen those hands stilling the sea, touching the blind and the lame. How often those hands had touched Judas with the love of the Savior. And now he sees those hands that are bound. And the king of kings is surrounded by an army of an earthly king. And deep, 
sorrow wells within Judas. But apparently it's not a sorrow of repentance, is it? Because Judas' choice is to end his life. In fact, his sorrow is so deep that the 30 pieces of silver become a, a symbol of that sorrow and he ends up hating the cash that he'd maneuvered so much to get. You remember the rest of the story, right? He took the 30 pieces of silver and tried to give it back and they said, oh, we don't want it. The deal's done. And so he threw those 30 pieces of silver on the floor in front of the religious leaders and he fled and he went and hanged himself. You see, those 30 pieces of silver burned a hole in Judas's heart because they became symbols of his sorrow. And what he thought that he would live for became the very thing that brought great sorrow into his life. You see, friends, when, when we make choices to betray Jesus, whether it's for cash or personal comfort, or our own pleasure, or to pursue our own personal agenda, to elevate our personal preferences over God's purpose. When we do those things, we need to know that sooner or later, the outcome of that betrayal will fill our lives with sorrow. When will we look at the things that we've gained at the expense of Christ, and in time, we will see more clearly and our sorrow will be very, very deep. But it's all about what we do with that sorrow, isn't it? It's all about what we do with that sorrow. On the afternoon of August 4th, 1949, a lightning storm started a small fire near the top of a, a ridge of, of, of Man Gulch in Montana. It's a, a slope that was forested with Douglas fir and ponderosa pine. The fire was spotted the next day and by 2.30 p.m., a C-47 transport plane had flown out of Missoula carrying 15 smoke jumpers. 15 men between 17 and 33 years of, old, uh, of age parachuted to the head of the gulch about 4.10 p.m. Now, their radio didn't make it. Its chute failed to open, and it crashed. And so the smoke jumpers were isolated from the outside world. Now, at that time, in 1949, the smoke jumpers were a relatively new organization. They're barely nine years old. And to them, though, the Man Gulch fire covering 60 acres at the time of the jump appeared to be pretty routine. It was what they, they called a 10 o'clock fire, meaning that they would have it beaten by 10 o'clock in the next morning after the day they jumped. Well, the rest of the story is rather long and complex, but the bottom line is this, only three men survived. Two of them managed to run for their lives and made it to the top of a nearby ridge. The young men at, at Man Gulch had been trained to never, ever, under any circumstance, drop their tools. Now, one of the common tools of a, a wildland firefighter is a Pulaski, a, a combination of an ax and a pick that's very useful in fighting forest fires. But it's not very useful to carry it up a 76% slope when a grass fire is racing towards you at 610 feet per minute. 
And yet the, the reconstructed journeys of the victims of that fire show that many of those men carried their Pulaski a good way up that hill as they raced for their lives. In short, it's likely that many more of the men would have lived if they had been trained to drop their tools. Tools that worked in normal circumstances but became unnecessary in a crisis. I want to say this, friends. We are in the race of our lives. And we need to be willing to drop the stuff that this world deems so important. You see, the fire is raging and the time is short. What is it that is weighing you down? Holding you back? In danger of blurring your spiritual vision? Leading you down the dangerous path of betrayal? You see, following Jesus means saying, not my will, but your will be done. So what will it be for you? Cash? Comfort? Or Christ? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the power of your word and your spirit 